I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and today I'm joined by Daniel Finkelstein, Lucy Fisher and Ed Conway. Here are our topics for this week. The prospect of Jeremy Corbyn as leader is not a problem for the Labour Party. It's a calamity, a disaster, a debacle. It doesn't mean having a leader who can't win an election. The party can deal with that. It means having a leader that the mainstream Labour MP can't honourably even vote for or recommend as Prime Minister. It seems astonishing to me that these MPs have not pressed the panic button. They seem to be casually drifting towards catastrophe. Andy Burnham's wife let slip on Monday that he had wanted to be an MP since the age of 18. The revelation prompted jeers that he's a Westminster bubble career politician, a common slur that conveys suspicion and contempt. But I think it's time we stop bashing career politicians. Commons advisers who later look to stand for Parliament boast depth of knowledge of the arcane workings of the legislature, surely a good thing. And on a more important level, MPs who have dedicated years of their lives to politics as foot soldiers prove a record of interest and engagement that should surely make them only more electable. It's easy and fashionable these days to declare that inequality is one of the biggest issues facing the UK. However, it isn't necessarily true. In fact, the gap between the incomes of the highest and lowest earning tenths of the population has narrowed in recent years. The gap between most regions of the UK remains very narrow. The biggest divide is to be found not between the rich and the poor, but the gap between the rich and the super rich, which distorts the statistics. This isn't the inequality most economists have done studies on and declared to be a threat to economic growth, so should we really be worried about it? So, Danny, let's start with your topic. You are astonished that no Labour MPs have pressed the panic button in response to the likelihood now that Jeremy Corbyn will become Labour leader. It strikes me very odd as well that figures like Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband haven't called their party to sanity. Their non-intervention seems to me to be a massive dereliction of duty. Well, I think it's because they're misdiagnosing the problem. They seem to be all talking, Alistair Campbell's written an article on this, uh, about the problems of Jeremy Corbyn winning an election. Well, any party can deal with that problem. It's slightly embarrassing to find to run a leader who can't win a general election. You lose one and then you get a more uh, electable leader and try to win the one after that. This is a different problem. The problem they, they got is that they're about to elect a leader that they can't vote for themselves. They can't honourably recommend that you elect a, uh, as prime 
prime minister somebody who, for instance, thinks Russian television is a good TV station and is incapable of either saying that he's not a Marxist or condemning the violence of the IRA. So they will find it difficult to recommend him as prime minister and then it becomes difficult to see how the party stays together. So... I don't understand why, for example, you, you mentioned two good examples, why you aren't seeing uh, Neil Kinnock, Ed Miliband, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair all sharing a platform, perhaps with every elected member of the shadow cabinet that's, that's still alive, all saying to the Labour Party membership, I mean, it might not work, but at least they would have made a try, don't do this. They seems to be waiting until after it happens. And by that point, I think it'll be too late. There seems to be a hesitancy even amongst the um, leadership candidates as well. I heard Liz Kendall interviewed on Radio 4 on Monday and she wouldn't say that Jeremy Corbyn was a but be a disaster for the for the Labour Party. But at the beginning of the contest, she said, my politics have nothing in common with his. How mm. can she then recommend to people? How can Liz Kendall seriously recommend to people at the 2020 general election that they make Jeremy Corbyn the Prime Minister? She cannot honourably do that and remain a serious or intelligent political figure. And I think she'll appreciate that and will then be faced with this horrendous dilemma that the leader of her party is not somebody who's going to lose an election. That's fine. Not somebody who's embarrassing, but somebody whom she cannot honestly say should be the Prime Minister. But isn't the point uh, Ed Conway. Sorry, isn't the point that Corbyn actually won't be around in 2020, that realistically speaking this is only, you know, an election of a temporary leader. If you elect Corbyn, you have him for a few years and then you have a second leadership campaign in a few years, which might be a slightly more real one. Well, that's obviously uh, what they think will happen, but for, if you look at the figures that the Times published on Tuesday with 53% of people saying that they're going to, in the party saying they're going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. How do you get rid of him? They, they understand what they're buying. It's not that they don't understand who he is. And I, I think it's much more likely they'll get rid of the MPs than the MPs will get rid of him. In other words, that uh, they'll begin to deselections, that the process of the party will change. When I was uh, discussing with other conservative modernizers in the uh, early 2000s about what to do with the Conservative Party, you know, if you, it became clear if you capture the leadership, you capture the high command of the party, you capture the mechanisms by which the rules are set, um, you capture a sort of residual loyalty of the party machinery, you capture the party headquarters, you capture the party's fundraising. Uh, I don't think it'll be so easy to get rid of him. Lucy, what's your answer to... You're a part of the uh, Times political team. What's your answer to this question that, that Danny poses? Why haven't we got that kind of massive rally of Alastair Darling and uh, Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown on stage begging their party not to make this mistake? Have they almost given up? Have they, do they think now that it's inevitable and they don't want to stand in the way of the inevitable? Well, certainly there's a lot of momentum behind the Corbyn bandwagon and I think a lot of politicians in, in the Labour Party don't want to be seen to be being undemocratic, going against the will of you know the voters, the new recruits who are signing up in their droves to vote for him. Although but the Times opinion poll that we had in Tuesday's paper from YouGov suggested broad support. Yes, he has Corbyn has more support amongst the new entrants, but among existing yes, Labour true. members that's as true. well, he is broadly supported. Yes, absolutely, and he's seen as this breath of fresh air. But something I thought was interesting in uh, Alistair Campbell's fairly scathing uh, blog post yesterday was the uh, acknowledgement that, in fact, his intervention might be unhelpful. Um, I retweeted the blog, and, and uh, certainly lots of people on Twitter were sort of saying, oh, well, of course, you know, Tony Blair's spin doctor would say that, you know, only shows, you know, if 
if he's an enemy of Corbyn, it only shows the purity and probity of our man. <laughs> mm. um, and I wonder if there's, uh, for once, some self-awareness and, and cognizance of the fact that help uh, standing standing in and, and, and sort of shouting him down uh, is probably not the way to go for people like Gordon Brown and, and Ed Miliband. How, how big do you think the entryism problem is? The paper led with one of your stories at the end of last week, noting that a number of names were clearly people from other parties or extreme organisations. Do you think the Labour Party has got to grips with the extent of entryism or have we discovered the, the, the limited nature of the problem or is it bigger? I think it's a, it's a very tricky question. Undoubtedly there has been true entryism in, in the sense that we've had people who are senior members, part of the ruling committees of far left parties trying to enter and, and perhaps retain structures and, and subvert the party, that there is a real suspicion that, that there is um, some of that going on. That is limited. A bigger problem is people from other parties who perhaps want to support Labour in, in a bona fide way, um, nonetheless are breaking Labour's own rules. They're still members of the Greens, they're perhaps members of the Lib Dems, members of other parties. And a, a real problem is Labour can't answer its own questions about about who should be allowed to vote uh, and, and how to decide and evaluate in a fair way whether people who even stood against them in May now have, in, in good faith, changed their allegiance and want to be part of the Labour Party going forward. Ed, I don't want to preempt the third topic we have in the, in the <coughs> podcast, but trying to understand this Corbyn phenomenon, we don't have a spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn on this podcast, so you'll have to <laughs> so surprise at the, uh, oh, this point. But again. You, you, your, la your latest column looked at some of the things that Ed Miliband, for example, proposed when he was Labour leader that have been embraced by George Osborne on the living wage for a start, perhaps not fully, but to some extent. And you think there are some insights, if not prescriptions, from Jeremy Corbyn that are clearly resonating with Labour members and could resonate with the public? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's clearly a kind of, you know, micro-political thing, which is what's going on in the Labour Party and, you know, are the... Uh, rank and file frustrated with having been told what to do for the last kind of you know five ten years and that that getting them nowhere 20 uh, 30 years I think they feel they've been since been and it's clearly not working control. and there's there's that mm. kind of inherent frustration there but also yeah I think you know he he is he has proven to be pretty good at diagnosing some of the main issues facing the UK uh issues that that maybe they feel that others don't necessarily Such as? Speak what issues were you well I mean in, inequality is a straightforward one I mean everyone talks about inequality and maybe we'll talk about that a bit later on but the the problem of the banks so it wasn't just necessarily labor overspending it was a genuine bona fide financial crisis that actually led led us where we are at the moment the banks need to be sorted out i think actually probably a lot of people would agree with that that you have dissatisfaction with the way the railways are run and the kind of new privatized utilities uh, are o overseas interventionism exactly yeah you have the kind of you know question of nato membership and trident you know a lot of issues which i think actually do genuinely resonate whether you know the metropolitan and elite such as they are, uh, like it or not. And, that you know, I think there's an enormous question mark or set of, set of question marks over precisely the prescriptions that he's provided for them, which some of them seem to, react to be quite reactionary, some of them seem to be quite old-fashioned. Most of them don't make all that much sense, but nonetheless, the diagnosis is pretty good. His support is the, the metropolitan elite. One of the things that will happen if he's elected is there, there may be a sort of feeling that he is, you know, the outside man. But actually, if you, one of the things that was really interesting about the Times poll on Tuesday was how much better Jeremy Corbyn was doing among Guardian readers than among Mirror readers. He, he 
is a um, a recognisable figure representing a real demographic in Britain, which is far left, uh, middle class, sort of, I mean, I use this as a slight cliche, but academic type of person. I don't don't do that to dismiss it. It's a real political opinion. It just cannot possibly uh, command more than a small portion of support. And, you know, the, the real question is whether the bulk of what the bulk of the Labour Party is doing are going to do about it because we've never before had the leader of a political party utterly at variance with their parliamentary party. Mm. He could not get enough members of parliament to agree to him to be on the ballot paper. He had to borrow those from other people who don't agree with him. And so how he feeling a little bit silly now but can, 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 can I just ask you to address the point that Ed raised there are issues like renationalisation of the railways like yes. bringing the banks down to to size that actually the public do according to opinion well, polls support he he does have some issues that reach well beyond course, that guardian reading class of course i think that providing that a government is economic pr- provides economic competence and growth people do want a moderate social reform and they will support that and governments ought to deliver that and you know, I personally agree with it too. Actually, the living wage was not just an idea of Ed Miliband's, also an idea of David Cameron's, and he just got ended up delivering it first. But um, so I don't doubt that Jeremy Corbyn has some ideas about how what's wrong with society that he wants to put right. But the idea that people and, and Ed makes this point made this point earlier this week in his in his excellent column uh, the idea that people want to put it right through the sort of people's quantitative easing and restoration of clause four which is a sort of goes far beyond merely reorganizing the railways which might be mm. quite hard practically to do anyway. but, there, but there is a little minute case ed made it in his column that that actually you given the historically low international borrowing rates you could spend more money, borrow more money to invest yeah. in infrastructure. We're I mean, only spending, as a nation, that was half a, as much as the percentage of GDP on infrastructure as we probably should I, be. And if he makes that case, rather than perhaps the case for quantitative easing funding that, yes, I mean, that's if he actually said some, not just popular, yes. it might be good economics. Good. If he said you, you would agree with that, Ed. If he said something different, it would be more sensible, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, I would. It's a prescription. I was, I was going to ask Danny, though, I mean, is, is this straightforwardly, all of this, just great news for the Tories, or is there any way that that backfires? This no, I, I, I think it will make it much easier for the Conservative Party to win the next general election, uh, but it will also make it harder to govern. The difficult task of trying to reduce public spending and get the economy... Uh, get the deficit down, leave aside the question of borrowing to invest, but that question of current spending, that is very difficult to do in a sort of way that is maintains a national consensus and, and social peace, and it will be much harder to do against a more militant, aggressive opposition. So I think it will be, this is a bad thing for the country, and I'm completely opposed to him being elected from the point of view of being Conservative as well as um, looking at it from Labour's point of view. Just just, just before we move on, uh, Lucy Fisher, is there any good scenario for Labour at the moment? Because we're all assuming that Jeremy Corbyn becomes leader of Her Majesty's opposition. He may not be. He may just be a narrow loser. And in a way, that might be the best outcome for him. He won't have the responsibility of power, but suddenly within the Labour Party, he will be a considerable figure, constantly pulling the Labour leadership to the to the left 
Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I and I don't think it's necessarily you know uh, a bad thing for Labour. There's been a lot talked about the electability um, of Jeremy Corbyn, with almost just the assumption that he can't win an election. But um, to slightly disagree with you, Danny, I went to uh, a Corbyn rally in Norwich last Thursday evening, in which 1,500 people queued for three hours to hear him, and they weren't middle-class guardianisters. There were people who worked in factories, um, unemployed, social workers. Uh, and I know that because I sort of, you know, went around speaking to them. And the interesting thing they all said is they were convinced, um, some of them, that he could win an election and drew comparisons to the SNP tidal wave in Scotland, even uh, Barack Obama's first presidential bid. And, and a lot of them, when asked about electability, said, well, if you think Jeremy Corbyn can't get elected. Look at the lacklustre other candidates on mm. offer. Why on earth? You know, if they didn't vote for Miliband, why would they vote for Liz Kendall, Andy Burnham or Yvette Cooper? And so I, I think there's a scenario, just going slightly away from your point, that, that it could be good for Labour if Jeremy Corbyn does win and, and this grassroots support snowballs. OK, well, you know, live and learn. Oh, that's very interesting what you had to say about um, your visit to that meeting and who, who was who was there. I was going more on our, on our poll, but that's very important to, to have that corrective. The, the, the idea that that he's electable, though, is fantasy. I, I, I don't believe that he can command, but he can command intense support, but not broad enough support. That that would be my suggestion in it. And I think there will be a sort of element of um, winning support from people who haven't previously backed political parties and a degree of enthusiasm about it. But for that to translate into um, him being elected Prime Minister, well, I, d- I don't think that will happen. Well, what, one thing I will do, um, Lucy, and, and for all Times subscribers, is if you go to the times.co.uk slash comment central, you can read this um, Ed Conway article we've been talking about and other articles that... Um, provide background to what we've been discussing including quote from someone who observed the Michael Foote campaign in 1983 that's been doing the rounds on Twitter when Michael Foote would go back at the end of the day and say I just don't believe the opinion polls I'm speaking to rallies of 1500 2000 people and there's such enthusiasm and his advisors are saying for every 1000 people in these pack meetings there's 50000 people outside who don't uh, agree with you but Lucy your 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 topic is about career politicians and maybe this partly explains why Jeremy Corbyn is thriving he of course has been in politics (laughs) for a very very long time but he feels I think used the expression earlier a breath of fresh air he seems just different and you want to defend career politicians I do so I thought it was interesting hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yesterday, Andy Burnham being sort of outed as having this long-standing ambition to enter the Commons, um, and in a sense, it did seem hypocritical because he himself uh, is always disparaging career politicians and trying to present himself as the antidote. Uh, and what I just want to say is, I think politicians should stand up for themselves more uh, and and um, and say, look, it's a good thing if we've got ambition, if we've been interested in this for a long time, if we've got long-standing convictions, that makes us better place to serve you. And I think it plays into a bigger trope of, you know, politicians, they're all in it for themselves um, and, oh, no, they shouldn't be paid more. And, um, 
And then there's a sense in which they rather disingenuously, uh, disingenuously, many of them go along with it and sort of try and sling mud at each other for their backgrounds, um, working in the commons or or, or in other kind of political roles. Uh, and, I, and I think it, it only probably helps them to be good MPs. Ed Conway? I, I just... My only problem with this is I just have this memory of university student politics and this, this slightly kind of grubby, incestuous world which... You know, I, I, at the time I found slightly unappetising and slightly obsessive, and a lot of those people are now working in politics in Westminster <laughs> today, people I was at university with. Name it's names. Like, it slightly <laughs> terrifies me um, at that knowing them, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of listeners will kind of, kind of feel the same thing, knowing people who were so obsessed with it back then and obsessed with it now, there's a slight kind of, you know, resonance and a slight mistrust that, that, that creeps in. I mean, I agree with you that, you know, if, if someone is serious about wanting to be in politics and wanting to make a difference, then why should we, you know, not allow them to do that? And I think there's no point in, in forcing politicians to kind of, you know, have two years in business just to show it, you know, just to, to mark it off their CV. You don't think people are better, though, from having that time in serving in the military or in law or in public service, spending a little bit of time outside of politics? And then, <laughs> I wouldn't then know, because I'm, I'm basically the next worst thing to a career politician, which is a career journalist. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we don't have to watch the bottom line all that much. I, I, I think probably it is important to, to, you know, to have some understanding of, you know, the market and of, of kind of profit motive and, and, and how that works and how to manage and how to, to run an organisation. Um, but you could you don't necessarily have to do that in business. You could do that in politics. No, I, just to come back to you quickly, I mean, that's that's another thing that, you know, is often said, you know, you need to go and run things. Um, but in actual fact, I think, again, there's a, there's, there's a mistaken sort of logical fallacy that's grown up around the idea that if you run a small business or even a big business or if you know, you've got a family and you run a household, that that is comparable in a helpful way to running the nation and the finances of a nation. I think, I think they're very different things. And, and while it's, that's helpful in a different way and kind of real world experience and you can relate to business and what they're doing, it's not the same as the business of governing. Just putting aside the rights and wrongs of whether career politicians are good or bad, um, Danny, I just, I'm sure you've been following the Canadian election as closely as, as I have. Yeah. And the, uh, Stephen Harper's just put out a, a video attack on his principal opponent. And all it says is he's a career politician. Now, that yes. is the... the it, it, Nigel Farage, of course, tried this attack yeah. on the Westminster establishment, even though, again, he's steeped in politics, I think four or yeah. five-term MEP. Do you think it works as a yes. political message? It's very powerful because people think that everybody in politics has only worked um, in politics. In fact, 85% of members of Parliament have had jobs outside politics before going in. It's also the case that... Um, well, well, what kind of jobs, though? Cause all, all sorts of things. Not, does, not, it, not, does it mean yes, think business. tanks, journalists? No, no, no. Uh, PR? Outside, real, jo outside, real jobs in inverted Well, commas. I mean, I, first yeah. of all, by the way, um, you know, I ran a, a small think tank myself, so I'm speaking on behalf of it, but that involved everything, the fundraising, uh, public Publication, but it's a real Human job. Resources, so I, I bridle yeah. at the idea that somebody else's job, um, the job that I had when I when I ran a computer newspaper, was a real job, mm. uh, and the job that I had when I ran a think tank was not. Uh, but still, the uh, so eighty five percent of people had that. Um, it's also the case, however, that th throughout history, many of our prime ministers have gone into 
uh, Parliament in their 20s. One of the reasons why those people rise to the top is that representing people politically is a skill. Uh, it's a different. It, it, it's something that you learn, understanding public opinion, um, learning how to appeal to people in public. That is a skill and a job that needs to be done. In other words, mediating and compromising the interests of the general public to reach a consensus that allows people to form laws. So I think that people do underestimate the importance of that skill as if it was nothing. But yet if you've worked like I have in politics and seen that um, some people uh, who are very, very capable people uh, in, in the outside world lack that skill, um, they bring things to politics, but they also required the skill of those people who worked in it. So mm. you require a mix. Politics would be very poor if it had only in it career politicians. But Lucy's completely correct. The career uh, career politicians with their more sophisticated understanding of how politics works also bring something very important. Right, let's move on to our third and final topic. Some of the most interesting opinion polls are not testing what people's um, attitudes are, but actually testing their knowledge. Now, if you ask people whether the hunger is growing in the world, they will say it is, even though hunger is falling at a, a rapid rate. And I suspect most people will say that inequality is rising dramatically in the UK. Ed Conway economics editor of Sky. I haven't credited you with that yet, which I must do, but you beg to differ somewhat. You think the equality picture, inequality picture, is a bit more complicated than perhaps public perceptions think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, most measures, of, the kind of historical measures for inequality, things like the Gini coefficient, you know, it's just a kind of measure of the gap between the richest and the poorest kind of tenths of the population in terms of income. Other measures as well in terms of kind of uh, assets as well, to some extent, they have been narrowing over the course of the last And what are you years. talking about? Globally? In, in the, the UK, well, I'm talking in the about UK in the UK well. for the, you know, because that's the what time people surprise. A lot of people perhaps are open to thinking inequality in the world is shrinking. Of but course, the, the, the consensus is, I think, that in America and in in Britain, somehow an elite is moving further and further away from but, the majority. But there is a kind of, there's a nuance to this. You know, inequality in terms of that measure, which most people have done the studies on, you know, the richest tenth, the poorest tenth of the population, that is improving. The, the difference is that it's the gap between, you know, the richest 10% and the, you know, very richest 0.1% is actually widening at an extraordinary rate. And, you know, I was struck by... You know, we talk about this kind of regional inequality and, you know, the northern powerhouse and all of these policies that are necessary to bring the north back in. But actually, you know, many, many areas of the north have kind of disposable income levels, which are very similar to the outskirts of London, for instance. Um, most areas, I was struck actually, that, you know, the genesis for this is I was looking through the kind of levels of disposable income around the country by different regions, what they call nuts to regions. So looking in, in some kind of detail. And almost every region of the UK had disposable income levels between, this is your average annual disposable income after tax and so on, between about 15,000 and about 20,000, except one tiny area, which is what they call Inner London West. West Central London has a level of, I think, it's about £40,000. And so you've got a very flat level uh, of income across the UK, except this one tiny bit. And I think, you know, it's the, it goes back to this point that we, you know, we talk about time and time again, that it's not just a London problem. It's not just a northern problem. It's not just a London problem. It is a very central, super rich London issue that is affecting kind of inequality in the UK and skews all of the numbers. And I suppose my broader point is, 
all of the studies which say inequality is bad per se are based on inequality, a broad inequality, as opposed to this tiny level of inequality in a small gated community in the centre of London. Oh. That's that's very different. OK, so, so just suppose for a moment, and some people may not, your contention, I think, that you wrote in your column, if you take the richest part of London out of the statistics, we are one of the most equal countries yes. in Europe. Yeah. OK, just accept As opposed that. to the one of the least equal... Yeah. Um, but if you so just, 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 I mean, just I... putting that slight sort of probably quite controversial point aside just for the just for the moment, but even if that's the case, you still do have this super one percent yes. rich group, and public concern about that is still legitimate, is it not? Well, I mean, yes, but also public the the, amount, the extent to which we benefit from it is also legitimate. You know, this this. Our, if we didn't have the financial... And a lot of this is the financial sector. I mean, a lot of it is. If we didn't have financial exports, we would be in enormous trouble. Our balance of payments... You know, we have this enormous budget, current account deficit at the moment, this big gap between what we pull in from abroad and what we send out. And if we didn't have financial exports, which are an enormous part of that, we would be in massive trouble you like you know how, how, do, be... how do we know Ed? i think you yourself in columns have conceded that there's an over financialization of the uk economy our brightest and best graduates our most talented people going into the yeah. finance sector perhaps distorting the kind of regulatory regime we have not requiring banks to have enough capital the george osborne every politician has spoken about rebalancing mm. the economy and it hasn't happened because, and it hasn't happened because we're so reliant on it and i i think yes in the long term you need to try to become less reliant on it. There's all the sorts of problems that it causes, kind of Dutch disease, it can raise the pound, it has all of these effects on your economy, it makes it into a bit of a monoculture, it makes you far more kind of vulnerable when there's a future financial crisis. But for the time being, if it weren't for that, if that were to be plucked out, then we would be in instant crisis territory because we wouldn't have any of the revenues, we wouldn't have any of the exports that we so rely on. So, I, I, you know, I sympathise with... George Osborne, Mark Carney, all of the people who are trying to sort this out. I'm slightly worried that they're not actually trying to address it as you know as forensically as they could do. But you know, it, it, there there is no answer to to this kind of proposition I've put mm -hmm. forward. But what I'm saying is there is a very it, it's not inequality across the nation. It is a very very a very, very now, tiny. Very kind of thing. Um, are, are you worried about inequality, well, I, Danny? <coughs> I'm, I'm I remain <coughs> much more concerned about the ability of people at the low end of the wage scale to add a, pro a product and value to the economy and thus to be able to earn a good living without the state having to supplement it in ways that distort the whole tax and, uh, system. But I think that problem is going to get worse for people as we become more automated and therefore the issue of education is a central one. But I, I think the, f the first thing my first response to you is to say 80% of people who live in Britain are in the top 10% of uh, in the world. Um, and so you do have to partly look at this. Um, the people in Calais trying to get into Britain would agree with you. Globally. In other words, uh, people are desperate to come and be poor in this country because it's better to be poor in Britain. Um, and I think that is, you know, that, that 
shouldn't be ignored. The second thing is I remember watching a speech of, by Vince Cable in which he talked about rebalancing the economy and suddenly it occurred to me that, you know, respect him though I do, he wasn't going to rebalance the economy. He was just some bloke giving a speech. You know, it just suddenly occurred to me. Uh, we all we make all these talks about rebalancing the economy. It's unbelievably difficult to do that. Jeremy the, Corbyn wants to rebalance the economy. Yeah, it's unbelievably <laughs> difficult to, to for human beings to rebalance something that's so diverse. It's a primary do, aim of George Osborne. That's yeah, a primary Osborne. aim of this, are you, well, are you, are you, are you doubting yeah, yes, that? Yes, I am. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't doubt that it, uh, it's a good idea to try to invest in the way that Ed suggested in his column this week, and uh, to try to have another city in the country that's that can rival London. That would be a way of balancing, and I think there is something you can do about that. But in terms of rebalancing between manufacturing and the financial sector, I sort of think Nigel Lawson's instinct was probably right in his memoirs, where he questions whether really you're going to be able to do that. Mm. Do, you th- do you think, Lucy, it was a big theme of Ed Miliband was the super super rich and I think a lot of people afterwards thought that Labour needed to be more interested in the broad middle rather than constantly talking about bashing uh, the wealthy. Do you think this is, going back to where we started, do you think these sort of discussions are a distraction from how Labour gets back on track or actually is this such a potent issue that it is something Labour needs to deploy? I think it is potent and I think uh, as um, social media has grown, we have reality TV people can see how the super rich live um, in their Learjets and sort of mansions. And I think it's a key problem of perception that that many people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum think the merely rich or or well-off or middle class are super rich. Um, Mm. That's a sense I have sort of based on kind of what what I see. Attending Jeremy Corbyn, rather. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Yes, um, quite. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's worth having the conversation, I think, of what we think the duty of the state should be, whether all that matters is that we get everyone um, above a certain baseline of, of relative sort of, um, of, of a certain level of well-being and prosperity, and then we can all be intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich, or whether we think it's, um, it's an important goal of society to close that gap, to have, you know, more equality, more, a better sense of fairness, even if, it is only a matter of, you know, probably um, several thousand people who mm. are in that super rich league and, and the rest of us are, are broadly more together. Um, before, before we end, Ed, because uh, we've had such an interesting discussion, I've let this podcast probably go on a little bit too long today, but um, what's your view about why we are having this inequality of the kind you describe? Is it in the nature of capitalism or has something happened? There's a lot of talk about crony capitalism now with certain institutions like two big-to-fail banks propped up by government somehow not getting the kind of creative destruction that Schumpeter talked about, not being replaced um, and new forms of financial competition coming in. Is is this a capitalist problem or is it particular to how we organise financial regulation at the moment? I mean... It, it, it's all of that, I think, and more. You know, it's it, it's it's that it's it's the extent to which we have regulated and misregulated after the financial crisis. The extent to which we we have, you know, didn't necessarily kind of punish banks and owners of banks. I feel that its ownership structures of banks have a lot to answer for. Where you can basically still, you know, in the olden days. If you owned a bank, if then it was an unlimited liability partnership for the most part. If it went down, then you lost everything, including the shirt on your back, the yacht in the harbour. Mm. Now it's not like that. I think you know there are big problems 
uh, over that. That's not a domestic issue. That goes across almost every country in the world. I think from Brazil, Brazil has a slightly different structure, a lim- double liability. But anyway, there's the financial side of things. There's innovation as well. Massive, very fast innovation that we see at the moment in the internet, um, social media, so on. You know, it's 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 the Mark Zuckerbergs who are getting richer far faster than anyone mm. uh, out there in the city. And it's it's the kind of various different things that Danny kind of referred to, kind of automation and, and things like that. All of that happening at the same time, plus I think a political climate which is less redistributive than it was before, uh, for better or for worse. I don't think anyone's entirely kind of clear on what the answer is there, but certainly less redistributive. And we're not enti- we're not very good at taxing or working out how to tax or working out whether we can tax assets and capital as opposed to income it's very difficult to do it mm. whether we should be doing it more I, you know i'm no expert on this but we do it less perhaps than we used to in the past well jeremy corbyn is coming he will have answers <laughs> to all of those questions that you have posed well thank you all very much uh, uh for joining me today daniel finkelstein ed conway lucy fisher thank you most of all to you for listening and for listening to the end we've been a bit longer as i've already said today but i hope you have found the podcast as enjoyable as i have we'll be back next week until then thanks to my producer dave mcguire goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.